And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week for the CNN version of The Axe Files with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. And needless to say, there was plenty to talk about. Not all of it made the TV show. Uh, Here is the entire conversation. Madam Secretary, it's so good to be with you. I'd like to spend a whole hour talking about college football and college (laughs) basketball, two passions that I know we share. But I have to tell you, I actually came here for a little therapy. I I read your book, Democracy, which is a great book. Thank you. Uh, But it really feels like democracy is being challenged right now, not just overseas, but here as well, that the forces of nationalism and nativism are on the march. Uh, What is going on? Well, there's no doubt that we're going through a pretty difficult period. Um, I say in the book that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are back. Uh, Populism and nativism, I really think of it, not even nationalism and protectionism and isolationism, and they tend to ride together. And I think we have to ask ourselves, why has that happened? Uh, Those of us who really believe that the global order that the United States helped to create after World War II has benefited us greatly have to recognize that there are those for whom it was not beneficial. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you are an unemployed coal miner or someone whose skills have not kept pace, not to mention a third grader who can't read, then uh, this global system is going to be frightening to you, and populists are going to play on that. And so we have to go back to first principles and think, as a democracy, how are we going to develop human potential to the point that everybody shares uh, in the benefits, or at least has the opportunity to share if they're willing to work for it. Now, it didn't, it wasn't lost on me that you wrote an epilogue in your book, and then another chapter followed called 2016, which I suspect you added after the fact. And it read a little bit like an admonition. Some of it is what you just said. Uh, Another thing you said is the standard bearers for those who voted to shake up the system need to find the humility to know and accept democracy's paradox. Its genius is in its openness to change, but its stability comes through institutions that embody constraint and reject absolute power. Uh, How's That was unmistakably an admonition to Donald Trump as he took uh, office. How do you think he's doing? Uh, Do you see the humility and the respect for democratic institutions? It's an admonition to anyone who takes power in a democratic system. And particularly, uh, we have across the world, not just in the United States, people who are coming to power who say, I I want to reject everything that has come before. Well, that doesn't work in a democracy because the institutions are enduring. And here in the United States, we're very fortunate. The founding fathers uh, were really rather suspicious of uh, too much executive power. They gave us checks and balances. They gave us federalism with the states with great power. Uh, They gave us um, a system that has now created a place in which I think just about everybody thinks they ought to be president, wherever their uh, experiences have been. And so every president operates within constraints, and I think this president is operating within constraints. Although not happily. I mean, some of the constraints, and you speak about it here very eloquently, are a free press, the rule of law. Uh, a, 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 an independent judiciary and so on. He's waged war, at least a war of words, on all of those institutions. Well, whatever the president thinks about those institutions, those institutions are holding and they're going to hold. And I Is it healthy, it, though, for him to be dis- I mean, I would, creating doubt about the I would happily, I would a, happily be in a situation in which we had uh, less rhetoric that was, uh, to my mind, disparaging of some of the institutions that I think serve us well. But the fact is that the institutions are serving us, and they're serving us well. And I will tell you, David, you've worked for a president of the United States. I have indeed. Right. Every president is a little surprised and, frankly, a little put off by the fact that there are all of these constraints. You've heard the president for whom you worked. I've heard the presidents for whom I've worked say, what do you mean I can't do that? Yes. Because we tell the people, you're the most powerful man in the world. And to a certain extent, yes, but not really, because there are all of these constraints. So when you have a president who's never operated in politics at all, who hasn't been a governor or a senator, I think you're perhaps going to have more of that. 
But I would just emphasize, as I do in the book, that uh, what democracies have going for them is that they're not dependent on the whims or the nature of any one person. The institutions are enduring. The, the difference, of course, between the presidents that we work for and this president is that, that uh, the presidents we work for express their frustration in private to us, not in tweets and in public forums. The presidents for whom we worked came out of the system. Uh, the presidents for whom I worked, uh, George H.W. Bush had held every important title, it seems, uh, in America. George W. Bush had been governor of Texas. Uh, Barack Obama had been senator from Illinois. They came from the system and I think fully understood the system. But I tell my friends abroad when I'm asked about the administration. Which is all the time. Which is all the time. Yes. I say, let's look at where policy is going, and let's see where those policies are uh, emerging. I will tell you, I'm not in agreement with uh, everything that the administration has done. I'm a much more, a much stronger proponent of immigration, for instance, as, uh, as something that's very beneficial to the United States. I think we've been well served by having people come to refresh this generation after generation. I sit here as the son of a refugee. Uh, yes, and uh, I... We, we the people has had no ethnic or national or religious connotation. It's been an open concept, and that served as well. And so there I would find myself not very much in agreement. But if I look at the foreign policy, I have to say that it's not that different than the foreign policies that uh, we've pursued in the past. The rhetoric looks different. Um, I don't like the term America first at all. But there are things that the President of the United States suddenly realizes. For instance, I have to criticize Venezuela, and I have to do it on the basis of uh, an argument about democracy. I have to criticize uh, the mullahs in Iran who are putting down protests of people who just want a better life. Uh, I have to do something about Syria, uh, the Syrian regime, carpet bombing or using chemical weapons against its own regime. There are certain things about being president. What about Duterte? What about Turkey? What about other places in the world where he's actually been very supportive of repressive authoritarian I, I leaders? I do think that uh, the president has had an easier time uh, understanding uh, that democracy is really in our interest in the long run when we're talking about uh, enemies or adversaries. Absolutely. I would hope that that begins to translate into understanding that democracy is in and of itself a stabilizing force. That yes, it is true that you deal with uh, friends and allies differently. Uh, when we were dealing with the Egyptians, for instance, I'll give you an example. I gave a speech in Cairo I remember, in 2005, 2005, calling right there in Egypt, calling on the Egyptians to lead the Middle East toward democracy. Yes, it was aimed at uh, Hosni Mubarak. And I still believe to this day, had Hosni Mubarak made some of the changes that he started, he would have had a gentler retirement than President he has Obama now. echoed some of your themes uh, four Absolutely. years later. But you know that when people come to, say, come to you and say, well, how can you even deal with Mubarak? Or how can you even deal with the Saudis? You understand that, as, uh, in fact, as allies, we do have to deal with regimes that don't have the uh, democratic structures that we would wish they do. So there is a difference. But the, you know, uh, uh, this president went to Saudi Arabia, and his message was quite different than your message. His message was, we're not going to tell you how to live, what to do, what to believe, and so on. He basically was saying, and this is how it was interpreted, and this is how it was celebrated in Saudi Arabia, he basically was saying... Uh, we're not going to. We're not going to advocate for human rights anymore. We're not going to play the role. Of, we're not going to do to you what Condoleezza Rice did, what Barack Obama did. We're not going to uh, uh, make this, those points. This is an early time still for the administration, and I just want to point out again. And I'll come back to Saudi Arabia because interesting things are happening in Saudi Arabia. But this is a time when, uh, when you say to the president, then. On what basis do you criticize Maduro in Venezuela? Well, if you're just going to leave people to their own devices, you have no reason to criticize exactly. what Maduro is doing. And so you see him speak out actually quite strongly about Venezuela. You see him speak out, with all due respect, uh, David, more strongly on Iran than President Obama did. And so I think you will start to see that uh, the 
understanding that our values and our interests are actually linked uh, will become more and more evident. When you come to a Saudi Arabia, you do have the beginnings of reform in Saudi Arabia. I don't know where it's going to end up. But I do know that when a regime, I don't care if they're our friends, when a regime starts to educate women so that more than half of the students in university are women, uh, they're not going to sit there and not be able to drive. They're not going to live with the world that they once do or that their mothers knew in Saudi Arabia. And so I'm confident uh, that actually uh, we're going to see more reform in the Middle East, not since, less. Since we're on foreign policy, you say the, the foreign policy is not, uh, not that much different. Uh, we've uh, withdrawn from a number of global agreements, uh, the Paris uh, Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which seems like a great boon to China, which is moving into that vacuum. Uh, the president has refused to certify the Iran agreement. All these things have separated us from our allies. You write in your book, when you lose, if you lose Britain, you're alone. Yeah. Well, we've lost Britain in many instances here. We've been, on the, we've been rebuked by our friends and our allies many times, and it feels like those global alliances aren't what they were. Well, I've been in circumstances where our allies rebuked us for what we did as well, as, as, has, uh, as mm-hmm. were you. Uh, our allies don't always agree on what we, we pulled out in the Bush administration of the Kyoto Accord. You would have thought the world was ending. Actually, it didn't. The United States went on to do what the United States is going to do, whether we're in the Paris Climate uh, Accord or not. We are going to continue to lower our admissions. We're going to continue, particularly state by state. This is where federalism Would you have pulled out of that agreement? I personally would not have pulled out of the agreement. What about the TPP? Because I think it was not worth the trouble of pulling out. But I will tell you that I don't think the Paris uh, Accord... Uh, pulling out of the Paris Accord what, means that the United States will walk away from its commitments to do something about, about TPP, climate change. What about the which seems pretty consequential? David, let's be, let's be fair. The former Secretary of State who helped to negotiate the TPP didn't defend it in the election. Mm-hmm. That tells you something about the politics of trade today. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the point that I made earlier. When we're in a situation in which you have an election and no major candidate... Uh, whether it's the, the Democrat uh, Hillary Clinton or the Republican Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. On yeah, the I think that was side. a mistake. Well, yeah, I do, too. But I'm just saying this is not. I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I, yeah. I think that there's been a neglect of the impacts of globalization. And, and until you deal with that, you're going to have this kind of reaction to it. That said, there are consequences to pulling out of that agreement well, that are going to be long, yes, long standing. Maybe. But when people say China is now going to take up the mantle of global leadership on fill in the blank, free trade, I say to them, with the nationalist economic policies that the Chinese have, where their markets are still closed in large segments, where if you talk to American CEOs these days, uh, they favor their national champions. You can't get a leg up, China is going to lead. When we talk about climate change, China is going to lead. Well, not until you can breathe in Beijing. And so I think we sometimes overstate some of this. Now, yes, I would have stayed in the Paris Agreement. I would have stayed in, uh, in the TPP. But I don't see these as disasters for American foreign policy. I will tell you that on the Iran deal, uh, while, again, uh, perhaps just to to keep from having the trouble around decertification, I might have said certify, I didn't support that deal. So I understand why the administration looking at it anew says we have a deal that, uh, yes, it does some good things on the nuclear side, but when you look at Iran in the Middle East, when you look at the troublemaker that the Iranian regime is, whether it is in Yemen or in Syria, when you look at the fact that that money that was unfrozen, uh, and by the way, this is what the protesters in Iran found out when that budget came out, is going to help uh, Soleimani and the Quds Force in Lebanon or in Syria. You ask yourself, uh, was well, the deal given, worth given it? Well, the, given the uh, nefarious uh, intent of the regime there, 
Would it be better if they had nuclear weapons right now? No, but I, I will tell you, I think that this is an opportunity for the Europeans um, and us to say, is there a way to improve this deal? I would look hard at questions of verification. I'd look hard again at taking off uh, restraints on uh, weapon sales, uh, advanced conventional weapon sales, on missile technology down the road. I would look hard at whether we're just buying time at the expense of looking and seeing that we actually have an Iranian regime with better capability down the road. Uh, rather than saying, well, we should have just certified the deal and stayed with the deal as it is, I do think that there is an opportunity for Europe and the United States to look again. And you know what? The Iranians have the same incentives to stay in this deal that they had to sign it. Uh, although that, uh, that, just as with uh, hardliners here who oppose that deal, there, the hardliners in Iran oppose as well. But l- let, well, me, but, but, l- let l- me just say a word yeah, about that, all right? Yeah. Let's not compare the hardliners in Iran to people who oppose the deal in All I'm saying States. is that everyone has no. their own politics, no, right? No, but the politics in Iran is about the politics of a few men. The politics in the United States is about a system in which people can come to disagree about policy. That's a very big difference, and I'm a little, I don't like the uh, idea that, well, they have their politics too. Uh, their politics a little bit different than Well, us. the thing is that if we're going to talk real politics about Saudi Arabia and other countries, then we have to talk real politics about Iran, too. But let me ask you about uh, something else in which you are one of the renowned experts, and that's Russia. Yeah. You know Vladimir Putin better than well, al- yeah. almost anyone uh, in America. Yeah. You wrote about him. Tell, talk about him and what he is up to right now. Well, Vladimir Putin um, is emerging, or maybe he's already emerged, as uh, someone who, out of his bitterness about how the Cold War ended, uh, out of his sense that uh, the West set out to humiliate Russia, uh, has created a narrative now in which uh, Russia is only going to be great by uh, the old-fashioned way of autocracy at home and aggressiveness abroad. And that's what we're seeing with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he so much has told me this. I said, said in the book, he said, you know, you know us. Russia's only been great when it's been ruled by great men like Peter the Great and Alexander the Second. You know, there's that little voice that wants to say, and do you mean Vladimir the Great? But, yes, yeah, that, that was implicit. Yeah, but that would be kind of rude, so I didn't uh, say yes. it. But that's who he thinks he is. And so too bad if you have to take somebody else's territory, uh, Crimea. Uh, too bad if you have to fly bomber runs along the coast of Sweden. Uh, what have the Swedes done to the Russians in the last couple of hundred years? But I actually think that starting with the Obama administration and continuing in this administration, we've sent pretty strong signals to the Russians uh, that this behavior is unacceptable. I think a larger defense budget sends that signal. Um, I believe that uh, what we've done in terms of uh, reinforcing uh, NATO forces uh, led by the Americans in Poland and in the Baltic states, uh, that the messages have been good to the Russians uh, in this regard. You, you presumably accept that they tried to interfere I in do. our elections. They have elections elsewhere. Yeah, I do. And what, what do you think the motivation was? First of all, I think Vladimir Putin just likes to make trouble for us. And he wanted to sow chaos. And he wanted to show that our democracy wasn't so terrific. He wanted to show that uh, if we thought his election in 2012 was fraudulent, well, he was going to show the nature of American elections. So I think it was about sowing chaos, first and foremost. And uh, the sophistication of the effort suggests to me that it went well beyond the Kremlin, that this was probably something really run by the intelligence agencies. Uh, It seems to have been well-targeted to certain groups of Americans. You know, they tried for many, many years, even under Stalin, to... Those Americans who who were aggrieved about... Those Americans who were... Globalization. Are aggrieved about globalization, uh, racial groups who Mm -hmm. might have been aggrieved. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is an old Soviet trick, you know, fifth column. But with 21st century tools. With 21st century tools. How threatening is that? Well, it... I think they may have been sorely disappointed. I think they sowed less chaos than they probably thought. They don't... My sense is they don't really understand the United States very well. Um, And so... um, 
yes, it could have been more damaging than I think it was. But I'll say this, David. You know, the next time around, if they're able to do it, shame on us, not shame on them. Uh, the the uh, the apparatchiks who came and went to Trump Tower and so on, is that consistent with the sort of modus operandi of the, of the Russians that you're familiar with? Well, the Russians are always seeking advantage. Uh, Sergei Kislyak was always seeking advantage. Um, I suspect that they uh, thought, well, you know, this is, uh, these are people with not that much experience. We can play on them and so forth and so on. I have no doubt that uh, that was sort of in the, the back of some. It's not surprising to me that people who wanted to get the Magnitsky Act um, overturned because the Magnitsky Act caught a Those lot of sanctions. Uh, yes, human sanctions. Right, uh, san- uh, human rights human sanctions. Rights. Um, and these were hit sanctions that hit some key players, so I'm not surprised that they... That was what they were coming to talk about. That's to what Trump they tried about. to probe you know, about. I'm going to say something that I have never said before, may never say again, right. but wasn't Steve Bannon right when he said somebody should call the FBI? Well, whenever you have an uncomfortable contact with the Russians, you probably ought to call the FBI. But I know that because I've been around. I'm not sure everybody knows that that's exactly what you ought to do. And so uh, this will unfold. He points out he's right. Paul Manafort knew a lot about the Russians. Well, Paul Manafort um, is under, uh, under uh, soon to be an indictment for other things that have to go way back, not around the election. Look, we will see what happens here. I have a lot of confidence in Bob Mueller. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. he was FBI director yeah, while, was, you, while you were the national security advisor. What is your – tell me about him. Well, you, and he came – under the most difficult circumstances, you know, taking over that agency just a few months before 9-11. So uh, under very difficult circumstances, he is a terrific person. He's a straight shooter. Um, I think he will uh, push to a conclusion. Um, I don't have any idea of what it will be. I hope, frankly, it's over pretty soon because um, we need to get on with um, our business. And by the way, I want to just go back to one thing about Vladimir Putin. Uh, David, I think he loves the fact that we're spinning around about this, mm-hmm. that our heads are blowing off. Um, I would have preferred to say, we know you did it, and at a time of our choosing, we will punish it, and you won't do it again. But we have confidence in our institutions, and you can't affect our elections in the way that you think Does, you can. Doesn't it send a mixed signal if the president uh, calls it a hoax? Well... The president shouldn't call it a hoax. Let's just say that. But the fact is, uh, we will get to the bottom of what happened. I hope that there are people spending as much time trying to figure out exactly how the Russians did what they did. I agree with this. Right? So that, because so that that's we can really stop the issue. Doing so we can again. stop them the next time. All of these attacks on Mueller and his integrity, do they bother you? Well, because I know him personally and because I have high regard for him. But, you know, when you step out there in the public uh, eye, people are going to criticize. People are going to say uh, they're going to call into question what you're doing. Uh, It's the nature of the the game. Uh, Just going back to your book, what worries me is just the assault. It's really an assault on the institution of of the Justice Department, the FBI, the rule of law. Uh, It's not just Bob Mueller. It it suggests that the whole system is rigged. there, There are people who are arguing now that there were some within the uh, FBI that had a view. Uh, If they believe that, they have a right to say it. And I will defend their right to say it. I may not agree, but I will defend their right to say it. But don't mess with Mueller. Let him do his work. I think Mueller will do his work, and uh, and the president has would it be a mistake to Mueller fire him or to try and impede the investigation. Try, I'm not going to try to give advice, and and nobody should try to impede the investigation. But I think you're seeing the system work. But I do want to say, David, if people have views, if people in Congress are concerned about what Fusion GPS was doing then they ought to be asking that question. And the idea that because people are asking questions about the other side, that there's somehow an attack on the institutions, that seems to me wrongheaded. Uh, Bob Ray, uh, I read somewhere, had a, a, a long list of Republican contributions. It doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. He's an American exercising right. his, his rights. So 
should the fact that one of the FBI officials has a wife who's running for office and has to, happens to be a Democrat, uh, should that be? I fully believe that those who have responsibility for oversight can ask whatever they wish to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's talk about North Korea, another headache that you shared for Absolutely. quite a long time. You know, the president has said he's been pretty harsh about all the previous administrations, and he, uh, to some degree, doesn't he have a point? Many efforts have been yeah. made. None of them have stopped the forward momentum. Oh, he of absolutely this. has a point. Uh, but I would just say, as I used to say, you know, we people have asked me, what was it like to be in there? I said, well, you get up in the morning. You read the Washington Post. It says, the United States of America should do something about the North Korean nuclear program. And you say, why didn't I think of that, (laughs) right? Yes, he has a point that nobody was able to stop it. But I think the administration is finding out just how hard it is to stop it. What did you think when you woke up uh, a week ago or uh, a little more than a week ago now and saw the president's tweet about his nuclear button being... (laughs) larger than, uh, I have, than, I, than I, Kim's I'm, nuclear button. Was that a wise been, thing to do? I've been no fan of the, the tweets, the policy by tweets. I've been no fan of that. Uh, but I also think it didn't deserve, um, you know, square column inches of analysis. Nuclear war, though, is, is a pretty yeah, serious uh, deal. Nuclear war is a very serious deal. But uh, I think people would be mistaken to think that because the president has an ill-advised tweet, we're about to have nuclear war with the North Do Korea. Do you have any concerns about misinterpretations or provocations? I think Kim Jong-un is turning out, um, much more so than I thought, to be actually uh, pretty clever. Uh, the approach to the South Koreans was clever. The decision uh, to go to the Olympics is clever. And so this is somebody who understands his his interests. Now, I think he is more isolated than his father was because uh, the Chinese have said to me, and I have no reason not to believe them, that Kim Jong-il, his father, remembered that the Chinese had saved his father when we crossed the Yellow. And so there was a connection there. That Kim Jong-un is a different character. I fully believe that. Perhaps it's certainly more reckless. Uh, I wonder sometimes if he really believes it when people, when he says, I can destroy the United States, because anybody who tells him something he doesn't want to hear seems to get killed. So yeah, maybe... Which is a real disincentive. Which is a real disincentive yes. to tell him the truth. So I worry about those aspects of him. But I've seen in his recent moves a cleverness that um, I find uh, interesting. And by the way, uh, we tried the six-party framework uh, with China in the chair, Japan, Russia, the United States, South Korea, Mm -hmm. and North Korea. Um, And uh, I think it's one reason that you want to make this multilateral diplomacy, what's just happened. What the North Koreans love to do is to drive wedges between the various parties. And perhaps... Which which they're trying to do now. And so you have to be very careful that you don't get into bilateral negotiations with the Chinese or bilateral negotiations with the Japanese or with the North Koreans without really fully integrating the South Koreans, who, of course, have the most at stake. The, the, the president, you use the word diplomacy. The president hasn't, and, and you're very close to the Secretary of State, yes. Rex Tillerson. You yes. were the one who, or one of the ones who yes. uh, referred him uh, to the president. He was over in China yes. uh, in the fall, and he was working very hard to try and get some sort of negotiations going. And the president tweeted, I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State, that he's wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man. Yeah. Uh, put yourself in his shoes. You're there with the Chinese, and the President of the United States publicly rebuked you for doing what you were sent there to Look, do. Look, I can't imagine that happening. All right, I just uh, again, I can't imagine it happening with the President that that I served. I'm quite sure it wouldn't have happened. Uh, I think what Rex Tillerson is doing is uh, just working the diplomacy, just keeping his head down, going to work every day, and working the diplomacy. And I think he's making some progress with the North Koreans now. It may be that uh, what, when the president says you're wasting your time negotiating, he's probably right about that. Uh, if you're talking about trying to find a way, probing a little bit with the North Koreans, 
that's probably a good thing. I'm sure the president couldn't get that nuance. But I, I wouldn't. Nuance I wouldn't, in on Twitter. But I just want to make sure. I make clear. I don't think negotiating with the North Koreans yeah. right now is going to get us very far. Could there be a good cop, bad cop? I mean, do you think that there's actually an intent here, the, the, the whole crazy man theory that the yeah. president's trying to uh, send this message that he actually could press that big button on his desk and that they ought to uh, know, know that and, and make it facilitate Tillerson? I'm, I'm trying to be generous in my well, well, I interpretation. Do think, I do here. think in his, in his own way what the president is trying to do is to say to the North Koreans, you have no idea how seriously I take this. And, by the way, that is not a bad thing. And I think it has gotten the, the um, attention of the Chinese as well. Because uh, the Chinese, and let me just turn to the Chinese for a minute with the North Korean issue. The Chinese always thought, well, we'd rather have the regime in power, even if it means a nuclear North Korea. They want people flowing over the border. They don't want people flowing over the border. They don't want that perhaps we would, uh, we might even... Um, uh, unify North Korea the way that we did Germany. Now they have American troops on their border. They have all kinds of nightmares about the collapse of the regime. But I think what the administration is saying to the Chinese is, uh, you know, it's, that's not your choice. Your choice is a nuclear North Korea or war in the, uh, the collapse of the regime or war in the peninsula. Let me ask you about that. Is, that a, is there a viable military strategy that would not lead to catastrophic loss of human life? Well, there's always a military strategy. Um, That's I the last clause I'm yeah, concerned about. I, I really am not inside. Um, it's been 10 years since I had any access to how we might think about what the North Koreans are capable of doing with their artillery. I suspect that you're looking at a really kind of a catastrophic um, circumstance if you actually do have war in the, on the peninsula. Uh, but the military is right to look at the options because the idea of a North Korean regime with a nuclear weapon capable of reaching the United States of America is one that I don't think any president of the United States can tolerate. Um, just talking about Tillerson for a second, the state, there's been a lot of concern about what's going on at the State Department. Okay. A big outflow of career diplomats, of foreign service officers. Many of them are people you worked yeah. with when you were there. Yeah. Are you concerned about this loss of? In, I was with uh, Fran Townsend, former uh, Homeland Security advisor, who you know well, worked in your administration, and she expressed a real concern about this loss of institutional memory relationships. Uh, uh, what is your assessment of what's going on over there? Well, first of all, there are an awful lot of very good officers who remain. I would uh, talk, for instance, about Tom Shannon, who's uh, acting as P right now. He's one of the best diplomats of his generation. And so I think you have an awful lot of institutional memory left. I'm actually more concerned that we seem not to be bringing people into the service. Uh, you're going to get a, an age hump pretty soon if you're not careful. If you don't bring people in and people leave, you're going to just have a middle with no ends on, the other, on either side. And um, the, um, the numbers of people applying for the Foreign Service exam is down. Uh, it's always tough to bring in minorities, uh, in particular uh, under, underserved minorities, into the Foreign Service. And so I really do think that uh, when the Secretary uh, turns to how he wants to think about the service, the, the foreign, uh, the State Department going forward, that I'd look really hard at trying to get people back into the queue, because I'm, I'm much more worried about you make that. A, uh, you make a compelling case in this book for foreign aid, for yeah. diplomacy. Yeah. Administration wants to cut these things by a third. Yeah. And it's, as you point out on, on your, in your book, it's not a very large budget to start with relative to the rest of the budget. Is that wise? It's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen because of the same separation of powers we've been talking about. The Congress has its say. They, the Congress will always remind you that they actually authorize and appropriate. The administration proposes. Uh, I would be the first to say that um, a zero-based look at the State Department budget is not a bad thing. I will tell you, David, that I found um, in some of those nooks and crannies programs that had long outlived their usefulness. And you think, how are those still being sustained? Would you put, proposed a, a 30% cut? No, not a 30% cut. But I will tell you, as having been the Stanford budget officer, there is no budget that can't take a 10% cut mm -hmm. and use it well. 
And so I think to look again at how we're spending some of the money makes a lot of sense. But I think we'll get to, between what the administration has proposed and what the Congress will actually appropriate, we'll get to a good level. My point in the book, and this I would argue very strongly, is that foreign assistance, particularly to try to help create stable, more democratic, more capable states, is cheap money, uh, is, is a cheap proposition compared to what you have to do when states fall apart. Although you, you pointed out before, trade is a difficult issue. If you have a, a sort of nativist message, uh, foreign aid is a difficult mis- uh, issue as well. Well, it is, but uh, first of all, you have to educate on foreign aid. When you ask the American people, how much do we spend on foreign assistance, they'll get numbers as high as 20 25 percent of the budget. And, of course, depending on what you count, it's someplace between one and one. Right, I know. No, this is, right? Right. And so some of it's education. Some of it is also, um, I take some responsibility for this. Uh, people have come to associate foreign aid and, indeed, democracy support with what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they say if it's going to be that hard and that messy and that long-lived, maybe it's something we shouldn't do. When really, those were security issues that we were dealing with. And the question of what to do with those governments afterwards was a question after you had overthrown dictators. Much more often, foreign assistance is uh, more modest. The goals are more modest. And actually, the and results... And the yield is and great. And the yield is great. Yeah, no, and so I think trying to get people to see that, you know, it's, it's helping a Liberia with Ebola uh, maybe gets the, the conversation yeah, back in the right place. I also think that the place. interconnectedness of the world needs to be stressed. The fact is the problems that happen halfway across the globe are no longer not our... Absolutely. They can't be not our problems because ultimately they will be. They will come home to haunt us. That's um, Just the last thing on Tillerson... Uh, I had one of these conversations with Jim Baker, one of your predecessors, another friend and supporter of Secretary Tillerson, and he said that he thought that uh, that Tillerson hadn't been given the full authority he should be given uh, to be the spokesperson for American foreign policy. Do you agree with that? Well, I think there are two things. Uh, The first is um, I don't think you have a real consistent message coming out of the administration on some of these important issues. And uh, there is uh, White Houses tend to be very strong in the first administration, um, but I think that it almost always works better when the Secretary of State is the key spokesperson for the American government and for the United States of America. And he's not right. And I think there are, people raise questions, and when people raise questions, you need to find a way to reaffirm that. And so I find Rex to be doing a quite remarkable job under circumstances that are unusual. Circumstances I think secretaries of state have not faced before, including a president. Uh, Unusual in what way? Well, a president who's never been anywhere near the government before, who's never even sniffed the government. And so I think it's different. It's one, by the way, one reason that some of us thought that a secretary of state who came out of a different uh, environment where the president was clearly tired of us, uh, those of us who were part of the foreign policy establishment, and as a business peer, um, might might be uh, a good choice. I want to say one other thing, though, about what's happening at state. Um, I do think, too, that there have been some problems with the White House in terms of the personnel uh, process. Well, he was denied his choice and, for deputy. And I just think the personnel process is um, pretty pretty difficult. Uh, pretty narrow straw through which people are are being vetted. And uh, no matter what reorganization you have in the State Department, you're going to have an Assistant Secretary for Latin America. You're going to have an Assistant Secretary for Europe. And uh, appointing those positions is extremely important. Some of them are not yet filled, including the one that relates to Korea. Yeah. And those are your line people. You know, while the, while the, any business person can understand that if you don't have line officers who are overseeing the various units, you've got a problem. So if you're the Secretary of State and you're worrying today about what's going on in Syria, uh, and that's uh, really taking all of your time and in, in effort, you've got to have a Latin American assistant secretary who's worrying about Venezuela and an Africa assistant secretary who's worrying about whether Kenya is mm-hmm. going to survive its latest difficult election and so forth and so on. I, uh, if you, I, I'm sure you're a bit like me when I read these reports of this Michael Wolff book 
given the experiences that we had, we yes. both were blessed to work for presidents mm-hmm. with whom we were close. You had an extraordinarily uh, close relationship with uh, George W. Bush. First of all, could you imagine that kind of book coming out of your administration? No. Um, I, I don't think that uh, it is seemly for people who serve in an administration, who serve in a White House, uh, to, to talk about, uh, first of all, White House operations in that way and, and about the President of the United States that way. I don't admire it. Yeah, and yet they let the guy sit on the couch in the West Wing for nine months or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really extraordinary to me. Talk to me about that relationship you had with President Bush and what made it so, I mean, you know, by all accounts, you were by the end practically a member of the family. Yeah. What, 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 what was that bond between you? And what, what, what don't we know about him that we should? Well, it, it um, is a bond that goes back a long way because uh, when I worked for George H.W. Bush, I got to know the family. And it was actually President George H.W. Bush that uh, asked me to come and spend, spend some time with you his son. You were his Russia specialist I was his Russia specialist the during the, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, end of the Cold War. And we stayed in touch um, after he left office. And in uh, August of 1998 already, he said, you know, my son's sort of thinking of running for president. I'd like you to come out to Kennebunkport, spend a few days with him. I'd met George W. Bush before, but I hadn't really spent time with him. And we spent a good deal of time with he and his father fishing. I sat on the boat. I didn't fish. But talking about China and the Mexico and Russia and so forth. Um, and so it started early. And we went through the campaign together. And we went through the ups and downs of the campaign together. But I think what really connected us was that um, we had the same uh, view of America. Uh, people think you have to have the same view of foreign policy. But really to be a good president and a good secretary of state on foreign policy, you have to have an understanding of America and what it is and what it stands for and why it's different and why it's unique and why it's extraordinary and why it's had something to say mm-hmm. for the last 70 years about the course of human history in the world. Uh, we also shared a sense of humor, and that helps. We, saw, we found the same things absurd. We were both deeply religious, and well, I think that helped too. One of the things that I, want, uh, that I said some, in another forum the other day after the president reacted as he did to this book was I remember the humor with which George W. Bush uh, spoke about disparagements. Yeah of him joking that his staff doesn't think he's smart. They put an intelligence briefing on his schedule every morning and all of that stuff, which is enormously disarming. But it takes confidence to do that. It takes confidence, but I'll tell you something. People misread it. Uh, You asked me, what do people not know? They don't know how curious this man Mm -hmm. uh, is, was, is. They don't know that he probably read five books for every one that I read when we were in office. That one of the most uncomfortable moments for me would be up at Camp David. I've been traveling all over the world. It's been really tough. And we're at dinner, and he'll say, so we're going to go around and ask what everybody's reading this week. And, of course, he was reading something on the latest, uh, on the pandemic. Um, he, he got very interested in how pandemics spread. Uh, we were about to deal with avian flu, mm-hmm. and so he got very interested in that. Or he read something, a book about Teddy Roosevelt, or the mm-hmm. ninth different uh, book he'd read about Lincoln. And I was reading the same book every week because I was never having <laughs> a chance to read. That's how curious he was. I watched I him. I bet you cut you some slack. Yeah, well, a little bit. But I watched him in uh, meetings with cabinet secretaries go right to the point that the cabinet secretary had failed to, to mm-hmm. raise. So people never Which really. presidents have to be. They able have to, to be do. able to. You never knew how. Reading to is good. Yes. Let's stipulate right. that. Yeah. Re- reading is yeah. good. Yeah. I was moved by the book he put out, he paints now, of wounded warriors that he had painted. And it struck me that the scars are not only theirs, but his as the commander-in-chief. He made the decisions. He sent them to battle. Every president should feel that way. I know the president I worked for uh, did, and I'm sure you do. And I know you've been asked this question many times, but um, knowing what you know now, would would you have said, yes, let's... Let's go into Iraq. You speak about the aftermath in right. this book. Right. 
Well, with the uh, caveat that, of course, what you do today can only be affected by what you know right. uh, today, not what you do, uh, can affect what you do yesterday. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know because I think the weapons of mass destruction, we just didn't know. We mm -hmm. thought they were there. I would have to go back and try to think through how were we thinking about it. It wasn't just the weapons of mass destruction. It was the weapons of mass destruction in the hands of Saddam Hussein, who'd been such a cancer in the region. And I will tell you that I do think that Iraq and the region are better off without him. Uh, but when I think back on all of the lives lost, um, American, Iraqi, and other, uh, of course it's hard and, to and say. The, and the trillions of dollars and, spent. Yeah, but I, and the I, environment that's been created that you spoke to, the, yeah, the sort of the, the inward you, turning. Right, uh, the in, inward turning is a real problem. But I'll tell you something. When you look at the Middle East today and you look around the region and you say, would you rather be Iraqi than Syrian? Yes. Because the Iraqis actually have a government that, as weak as it is, uh, with as many sectarian problems as it has, uh, is accountable. People do go into the streets and protest. They do have a free press. They do have elections. And so I think they're better positioned to deal with the problems ahead. And uh, that, I hope, will be the legacy for all of the people who lost their lives. Knowing, uh, first of all, let me say, I was very grateful, and I know President Obama was during the eight years he was president, that President Bush uh, kept his counsel and allowed the president room yeah. uh, to do what he felt was right. Yes. Uh, and uh, he also was great to us, as you all were in the transition. So I was interested in October when he made a speech, and he may have consulted with you in advance, I don't know. But what he said was, we've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. Bullying and prejudice in our public life sets a national tone and provides permission for cruelty and bigotry. The only way to pass along civic values is to first live up to them. That was unmistakably a, a message to the president and about the climate that has been created. What provoked him? Uh, you, you've, I'm sure you've chatted with him. What provoked him to speak out in, 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 as is, it was so rare for him to do it? Well, I will tell you that he says uh, that this was about the environment in Washington, not at the president, but the environment in Washington. And obviously the president has a role to play in setting the tone in that environment. But I, I feel, and I believe, I won't speak for him, but I, I think he feels this way, our, our, our civic discourse has been going the wrong way for a while now. Uh, we can't see each other as political um, opponents without seeing each other as political enemies. Uh, we can't see each other as having different viewpoints, we see each other as somehow being morally bankrupt if we have different viewpoints. And it's not just in Washington, David. You see it in universities. You see it in, our, uh, in some of our institutions most devoted to uh, the free exchange of ideas. And so I saw President Bush is speaking to this degradation of a civic culture. By the way, I'm a big fan of social media and so forth, but it adds to the Without ability question. to to uh, to agitate, and I think Listen, we've got that problem. I have to say this, and I say it respectfully. You're you're famously cautious, which is why you are such a fine diplomat, and you're being diplomatic here. But it isn't it undeniable that the way the president uses social media and his. Uh, his instinct to demonize people who, uh, uh, who oppose him contributes greatly to that. The President of the United States is the trustee of our democracy. Yes. And there is yes, a responsibility is. And, that and goes And I would with advise that. him not to do that. But he is not the only problem here. This nature of our discourse has been going downhill for a good long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we as Americans need to figure out what our own parts in it happens to be. What, what role am, am I playing in it? You, you spoke about how President Bush treated President Obama. And I, I said to Valerie Jarrett at one point, I said, you know, we owe you our silence. 
And uh, it was hard, David, to sit through some of the things that were said about the Bush administration. Yes. No, it was hard to sit through uh, people who said, well, you know, they led from fear. Well, if you were president of the United States on 9-11, you better believe you led from fear. And so the, it has to go to all of us to look inside and it, it, say, it what role do we it, play in this? It does, but it starts at the top, and we both work for presidents who understood that. Well, I, again, I would advise the president uh, not to use Twitter in this way. Uh, I would say to the president, Mr. President, not every slight has to be answered, right? Um, but I do know that this is more the rule than the exception in Washington these days not just in the White House. And I know that it's more the rule and the, than the exception in too many of our institutions. Let me ask you about your own really incredible story that began in Birmingham, yeah. Alabama, at which was really the, the, the epicenter of the civil rights struggle and some of the horrors that uh, went on there. You lost a friend in, the, in that horrific church yes. bombing in, what, 1963? 1963, yes. Uh, Denise McNair? yes. Uh, how did that affect you as a child? Yeah, well, I had grown up in this very loving uh, cocoon, really, uh, at Titusville, the little part of Birmingham that we all lived in. Everybody was a school teacher. I think there was one lawyer and one doctor. Education, family, faith, that was the mantra in that community. Um, and uh, my parents always said, um, there are no victims because the minute you think of yourself as a victim, you've given your control of your life to somebody else. So you might not be able to control your circumstances, but you can control your response to your circumstances. And then in 1963, we couldn't. We couldn't control our circumstances, and we couldn't control our response to them. And so the bombings in Birmingham and the... How does an eight-year-old... How do you, uh, how do you process that? I just remember the night of the church bombing asking if I could sleep in my parents' bed, you know, because my parents were my refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, we got through it. We got through it with family. We got through it with faith. But it was frightening. I, I remember when we had the Annapolis Peace Conference for Israel and Palestine, um, saying at the end of that uh, conference, and I'd been given some points to be made, you know how it is, and, and I thought, no, that's not going to work. And I said, you know, I know what it's like for an Israeli mother to go to bed at night and not know if her child is going to be the victim of terrorism because my parents faced that. But I also know what it's like for a Palestinian to be in a circumstance where a parent has to explain why you can't go on that road because you're a Palestinian and not somehow let it reflect that you're a lesser person. And I think that Birmingham in its own way gave me insight into uh, what it's like to live with terrorism, what it's like to live with prejudice, uh, what it's like to have hope that democracy is finally going to start to fulfill its promise, which was my parents' belief about America. And um, I think it made me a better person. Now we're more than half a century later, a lot of discussion about what the state of race relations is. You, you, are, you, you, know, you were a child prodigy, concert pianist, you, you zipped through college, high school, college. I think you graduated when you're 19, right. got your Ph.D., came here, youngest provost, right. first woman, first... And you, the story is incredible, as I said. Um, and, you know, people look at you and they look at people like Barack Obama and they say, well, you know, this was unimaginable right. uh, 50 years ago. And yet there is this sense that... Uh, that, that somehow things are, are worse. You see that in polling, race relations are... I, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy that race relations are worse. I do say, and this is perhaps a good thing about us in America, uh, we don't want to accept a circumstance in which they are not dramatically better, race relations, in which we don't start moving toward a colorblind society. We don't want to accept that. And that's good for us. But we have to recognize that we have come a very, very long way. We have to recognize that uh, in everyday interactions, blacks and whites do just fine. 
But we do have some circumstances that are making it very difficult for us to continue to improve. For instance, there is no worse mix than poverty and race. To be stuck in a inner city, you live in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know what it looks like. I do. With no way out of the worst neighborhoods is going to get you into a bad situation. And the color of your skin is going to contribute. Because when the police go into that neighborhood, they're already going to have certain assumptions about what's going on there. And so if you're in that neighborhood, you're at risk. And so poverty and race are really toxic. Being uneducated and black is really toxic. And that's one reason, by the way, that uh, when I hear people talk about uh, school choice or vouchers or the like, uh, the kids that are suffering in our bad public schools are mostly minority kids. I want them to get a way out. Or improve those public schools. Well, I'm all for improving the public yeah. schools, but, but I want to be very clear here, because this is something I feel very strongly about. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the argument that, uh, let's, be, let's be fair, we have an opt-out system in the public school system right now. So if you are of means, mm-hmm. you will move to a district where the schools are good. You'll move to Palo Alto, where the schools are good. You'll move to Hoover, Alabama, where the schools are good. You'll move to Fairfax County, where the schools are good. If you're really wealthy, you'll send your kids to private schools. So who's stuck in failing neighborhood schools? Poor kids. Poor kids. Yes. Uh- and so don't say that poor parents shouldn't have a voucher or parental choice or a charter school because it will ruin the public school systems unless you're willing to send your kids to Anacostia. You mentioned uh, the police issue. You're here in the Bay Area. Yeah. You were a witness to the Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. And we yeah. mentioned earlier you're an avid football yeah. uh, fan. What did, you, what did you make of that and, and his... Uh... Well, I understand and, look, I appreciate that uh, these young men uh, want to send a message about... Uh, the fact that we've still got a lot of work to do in race relations, um, in community policing, and the like. I fully understand that. Um, But when you want to lead on an issue, you find a way to do it in a way that doesn't isolate people and turn people off. To lead is to bring people to your point of view. And unfortunately, this became not about what they wanted to say, which was very important, but about whether you support the flag, whether or not you uh, salute during the national anthem, whether or not you respect the sacrifices of those who served under that flag. And so I think it became counterproductive. Do you think the president handled it? Uh, I would have, again, I would have advised the president not to become a sports commentator on this one. But Maybe he's just being a politician. But on the issue, on the issue, to have it get to the point that it became about whether or not you support the flag was a problem. And I said to a group of young football players with whom I met, I said, look, the fact is people come to watch you play football. They didn't come to watch you protest. And they come with their families and they've spent their entire week's salary on one of those expensive uh, NFL tickets and, and they want to enjoy the game. But the impetus to want to say something about these events, I think, was a good one. I just think that the message got lost in the, uh, the means that they chose. What did the vote in Alabama mean to you? You intervened in that Senate, in that Senate race at the end, uh, and, uh, and you clearly were urging people not to vote for Roy Moore, although you didn't use right. his name going back to the famous caution that I mentioned before, but the message was very clear, and Alabama delivered a very clear message as well. What did that mean to you? Well, first of all, I wanted people to vote. Yes, there was and a that was, lot, there was your a, message was very Yeah, powerful. there was a lot of talk about 20% turnout and so forth. Yes. Um, I think Alabama uh, did the right thing. Um, I, I could not imagine uh, Alabama sending Roy Moore to the Senate. I, 
when your senior senator, Senator Shelby, for whom everyone has a lot of respect, says he couldn't vote for Roy Moore, you ought to listen. You know, you. So you, I, I was glad for Alabama, and Alabama's come a long way. Uh, we'll see what it what it means because uh, Alabama's still a deeply conservative state. You um, you have worked in the most uh, exclusive male corridors of power almost your entire uh, adult life. I mean, for for crying out loud, you were the first woman uh, or one of them admitted to Augusta, uh, the most exalted male uh, preserve. Have you been exposed to uh, harassment over the years? Oh, I've certainly had people say inappropriate things. I've certainly had people suggest that maybe we should just go out and, you know, and, and in situations in which it was somebody more senior than I. Um, and I, I've never faced a quid pro quo, an explicit quid pro quo. Um, I've never had anyone do anything that I would consider assault. Uh, but I don't know a woman alive who hasn't had somebody say or do something that was uh, inappropriate at best and aggressive at worst. Um, so I make of this moment in well, our Well, let me just say, though, I kind of grew up a little bit differently. Um, my father, I remember, said to me, you know, if somebody doesn't want to sit next to you because you're black, that's fine. Let them, as long as they move. And so I was sort of taught to handle these things and to say, just don't go there. Right? You don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Go away. But that's how I was raised. Not everyone um, yeah. has and, and that. And as you said, you, you weren't fired because of it or, no, or no. denied although, a promotion. Although, although I was an untenured faculty member mm-hmm. who had a very senior person say something to me and suggest at least that this was. And I simply said no. And, uh, they must made have been unhappy sure, when you became the provost. Yeah, and I also made sure, <laughs> also made sure that, that some people knew that this person had said that. You know, so there were ways to handle it. But I, but I don't want my own response to be one that uh, somehow belittles the response that other women might have made, because we're all different. I think that the movement to expose these uh, these circumstances is a good thing. Uh, let's clear the air about it. I do think we have to be a little bit careful. Let's not turn women into um, snowflakes. Let's not infantilize women. Uh, I still want my students and I want women to be able to stand up for themselves and say, go away. Don't even think about it. And so, uh, and I, I want people to sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, a rather um, awkward approach uh, to a woman is not unknown in history. There's something awkward about male-female relationships anyway. And what I really don't want to happen is I don't want it to get to a place that uh, men start to think, well, maybe it's just better not to have women around. I've heard a little bit of that, and it, it worries me. Uh, did you see Oprah's speech at the? I uh, did. I, I read it. I read it. Um, you, you know, over the years, your name always comes up. Why doesn't Condoleezza Rice run for president? Why doesn't she run yeah. for vice president? You never have. No, and uh, never will. And why is that? Because you have to know your own DNA. And I've been around the process enough to know that I love policy. I don't love politics. And uh, to think that there are other ways, better ways for me to do public service. But um, I, I admire those who do want to run because heaven knows somebody's got to. So what's your advice to Oprah, who's now the subject of a frantic draft effort? Well, it's not up to me, but I, I would say uh, to Oprah, be sure that you really want to be a politician. You know, there's a funny thing that happens um, when you're secretary of state or uh, you are out there representing the world or you're a celebrity and you're out there representing the world, everybody gets to make a blank page of what they think you would look like as the president. And they only focus on those uh, characteristics that they want to see in the presidency. Now you're running for office. And all of a sudden, you're not that person who's just a blank sheet of paper that I can draw my own ideal president from the characteristics that Condoleezza Rice or Oprah Winfrey or, for that matter, Hillary Clinton. Right, who had have. stratospheric 
ratings when yeah, she left the yeah, Secretary of yeah, State's right. office, and 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 then we we know what happened. From so was, she, was so she, by the way, was she? Do you think she was a victim of of sexism or? Oh, I think campaigns are tough, whatever gender you are. Um, and it seemed to me that the treatment was pretty equally awful um, in campaigns, which is one reason maybe nobody really wants to run. But I would just say, if you're con- contemplating running for office, um, just recognize that we put people through a brutal process, yeah. and they don't come out quite the same. I I agree. Uh, that's the advice that I would give. Yeah. Secretary Rice, it's it's so good to be with you. Pleasure Appreciate to be with the you time. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.